You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your hosts, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Right, Sonny Hollywood Pooney, what's going on with your bad self this week? Just chilling, man. I got a Nashville trip coming up, so I'm a, a happy camper. Sweet. All right, so we got another interview episode this week. We were fortunate enough to talk to Rowan Robertson, former lead guitar player for Dio around the Lock Up the Wolves album, also doing uh, the Raid the Rock Vault and current guitar player, along with the guys, some of the guys in Armored Saint on the band DC4. Yeah, I don't know a ton about DC4. I obviously know Lock Up the Wolves stuff. I was very interested to hear the interview that you did with him because I don't know a ton about Robertson at all, to be honest. Yeah, you know what? He hasn't done a ton of press. He probably did a little bit of press when he was in Dio. I remember it was kind of a big deal because he was so young. I think he was 17, 18 years old when Dio selected him to replace Craig Goldie, who had departed the band. And so, you know, a lot was made about that. And his story about how he got the gig is kind of interesting because, I mean, it just sort of proves that persistence does work out because, you know, he was kind of ignored a couple of times that he went after that gig to try and audition for it. And uh, finally, you know, got into the right hands and uh, he ended up getting the gig. But uh, you know, nice guy, super nice guy. Lock up the wolves. I thought had some really good tracks on it, and there's no doubt in my mind this guy shreds guitar. I mean, he's a hell of a guitar player back then when he was only you know 17, 18, 19, and and nowadays still still a great guitar player. Yeah, I was uh, very interested to hear about his dad because I'm doing basically the same thing with my kids as his dad did with him. So that was kind of kind of cool to hear and. I will tell you, Dio, I'm still, I'm just a kind of fair weather fan of Dio, but the more I hear about this guy, the more it makes me want to be a deeper fan. So I really got to get into more deeper Dio, I guess. Are you talking musically or personally? Uh, just, I don't know a lot about Dio. I, you know, I, I listen to the hits. I've got some of the albums. Uh, I saw the stuff on MTV. I've seen them live several times. But I don't know as much about Dio as I do about Ozzy. I don't have a knowledge of the music as much as I do Ozzy. Yeah. Right? So, uh, but the more I hear about the guy, you know, it's just like Ron Keel, for instance. Like, you hear the person so good, but I don't really know a lot about Keel's music. It makes me want to go explore more, I guess, because they're good people. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I <laughs> I love Dio. I mean, I, I, you know, I was turned on to Dio around about the Holy Diver record. And, you know, I had a friend that tried to get me into Dio in the Black Sabbath era. And I just, just wasn't into it. I wasn't into Black Sabbath that much at that point. They were not really one of my grown up rock bands, so to speak. Uh, but, you know, I got into Dio and by getting into Holy Diver on that first record, you know, I turned around and went back to the Heaven and Hell and the uh, Mob Rule records. And, you know, now I'm a huge fan so much to the point you've heard me say it before, which is I actually prefer 
the Dio version of Sabbath, which, you know, is sacrilegious to a lot of people. But for me, it comes down to probably like the heaviness and the production of it all, because it was much kind of harder rock heavy metal to me than stoner rock you know, it just sounded different. I mean, it basically sounded different. Not to say I don't love all the Ozzy Sabbath, but songs like um, Paranoid, they just they don't compare to Neon Nights or Mob Rules uh, in terms of tone and sound. Does that make any sense to you? Uh, yeah, it makes complete sense. And I think the reason I didn't get into Dio, I got in at Last in Line, and I like that album, but he didn't have a lot of like, what I would call melodic to me is big backing vocals. There's this chorus that's hummable. There's this, it was just great rock music, but it was really him doing it all. And for some reason, I didn't connect as much. And maybe because it wasn't on the charts. I don't know. I missed it somehow. Yeah. Huh? And he was scary. Remember, I told you I got scared at the concert <laughs> I went to. Yeah. We left early because I was scared to death that day. Dude, but guess what? It's never too late to go back and get yourself a little Dio. <laughs> That's right. Get on up in some Dio. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Dude, I told you, pound for pound, probably the best show I've ever seen. I mean, I just, I, I can't tell you how much I really enjoyed uh, the Last in Line tour and then again, uh, Sacred Heart tour. Just amazing, amazing productions and shows. So I was all in. Uh, I'm looking forward to the rating the rock vault. Thanks for uh, uh, letting him know I was going to be there because I I am looking forward to it. He said pass his information on to you, so I got yeah. I got his phone number, dude. Just send it to me. I'll just send it to you, and you can make sure you go in and shake his hand and say hi for us both. Yeah, I, I can do that. Awesome. All right, well, you ready to get into this uh, interview? I'll pop in a couple of Lock Up the Wolf tunes along the way, maybe a DC4 song because we're going to talk a little bit about that. So let's make this happen. What do you say? All right, let's get on with it. Talk to you later. All right, we'll talk at you guys later. See ya. Hey, this is Rowan Robinson, and you're listening to Steve and Sonny on the Growing Up Rock Podcast. Crank it up. So, Rowan Robertson, welcome to the Growing Up Rock Podcast. You're doing well today, sir. Yeah, doing great. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. We want to get into everything Rowan Robertson, including your latest project, DC4. But I want to start at the beginning like we do with a lot of our guests on the Growing Up Rock podcast. It doesn't sound like from what I'm reading that there were a whole lot of musicians in your household when you were growing up. Your parents weren't musicians. That's correct. Yeah. So who was there to encourage your musical interest? Oh, my dad. So your dad was always encouraging to you, even though he wasn't actually a musician. Yeah. Yeah. He was always real supportive. You know, he'd take me to see bands, local bands, and and um, he'd buy me a guitar. And then, you know, when I got better, he'd buy me a better guitar and, and he bought me um, lessons, guitar lessons. So he really supported me all along the way. So what was it for you that made you want to pick up a guitar versus another instrument, say drums or, you know, tuba or <laughs> bass guitar or whatever? 
Yeah, well, I did pick up the drums at one point, but I always stuck with the guitar because I picked it up first. Yeah, I was better at that. And um, I remember I was sitting in school. I was probably, I don't know, pretty young. And, I, and there was a classical guitar there, and I was just sounding the E string, you know, just had my ear on top of it, and it just sounded so good. I just loved it, you know what I mean? Just loved the guitar. Right. And you basically, from what I read, you kind of started out with playing folk guitar and kind of picking up guitar in that genre at first. So how does somebody that start out in that genre with finger picking and folk playing and how does that turn into a shredder? <laughs> well, first thing was seeing Hendrix, you know, doing Johnny B. Good. Right. And then I asked for an electric guitar from my dad and and I didn't expect to get one and he bought me one for Christmas and then from there I just sort of bought those types of albums and maybe a friend gave me an ACDC album and a Deep Purple album and and then by that time it was Eddie Van Halen yeah. in 1984 I heard that and then after then I heard about Ingve and Vi and the shrapnel stuff and it was just all about that. I was at that right age, you know, like 15 when that stuff was all happening. So it was just really exciting to me. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because when did you start playing guitar? Like 10? Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Picked it up pretty young. Yeah. So you picked it up young, but you picked it up really quickly because you were essentially auditioning for Dio when you were uh, 18 or 19 from what I read which yeah. is only, a, I mean, that's nine years. I mean, I tried to play guitar and uh, I practiced, but hell, I never <laughs> never even came close to any of the skill set that uh, you had. So you must have had some sort of um, natural skill set or something when you first started out. Yeah, I think it was pretty natural on it. Yeah, it did come pretty naturally to me. And I loved it so much, I was always playing it. And, and at one point, I got a hip injury as a kid, uh -huh. and that put me off my feet for like two years. And um, I think that made me sit down with it a lot in that time as well. Wow. So young kid in a bedroom where he couldn't really get out there and play with his other friends. And basically, that was all you had to do was uh, practice guitar the entire time, huh? Yeah. I mean, that I would have been playing it a lot anyway, but I think that probably really focused me on it a lot at a young age yeah that makes complete sense and you got turned on to acdc and things i find it interesting that you talked about hendrix as being one of those earliest influences but really when you were 11 12 13 years old hendrix was kind of a thing of the past i mean people knew who he was obviously he, he was a guitar hero and a big yeah. influence but that wasn't really what was happening at the time yeah but i think in England at the time, it was a little different because all I heard on the radio was like, you know, Boy George and Culture Club, uh -huh. which is, you know, all well and good and, and fine, but the synth thing never really did it for me. And, and also in England, there's a lot of love for, you know, American rock and roll and like Chuck Berry. Those things are really sort of revered there, you know? And, and so I, I guess, I mean, really the only guitar playing other than that would have been like Led Zeppelin and Iron Maiden and and I just I guess I just heard him yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I was thinking in my head is that you would have sort of gotten caught up in the new wave of British heavy metal at that point in time, but well, yeah, you know, but in my school, I, there was a thousand kids, and only two of us were into 
like metal, you know? Yeah. Two or three kids. And I don't know, I guess, you know, my dad bought me a Hendrix album as well. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't really exposed to Maiden. I remember when Dio came out in 83 and I really liked that. Right. But there wasn't, a, it wasn't like having the internet or satellite TV or whatever. And there was just, you sort of had to fish around for it. And I guess that's just what attracted me really.
Yeah. Before you heard Dio, were you into like any of the Rainbow or the two Sabbath records he did with them? No, because I just wasn't exposed to it. I first heard Dio and then I heard Heaven and Hell because a friend of mine's brother gave it to him and it ended up with me. And um, I love that. I didn't even hear Ozzy singing in Sabbath till I was like 20. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so it just it just came to me as it did. I found a load of cassettes at a bus station once um, on my way to school, and it was a bag of cassettes and Rush Twenty One Twelve, Led Zeppelin Four, like dubbed copies of them, and, I, and so I had that, like you know, as well. But you know, my dad didn't listen to that kind of music, and it wasn't really around a lot. My friends, the guitar playing friends I had, were more into like fusion and pop and stuff like that. Huh. Interesting. Now there's a lot of debate that goes back and forth and I'll just tell you my personal preference. I'll let you tell me your personal preference. I'm kind of like you, like, you know, I sort of discovered black Sabbath way after Ozzy had left black Sabbath. So I never really heard Ozzy Sabbath. And I actually preferred the black Sabbath, the two records with black Sabbath and Dio more than I did the Ozzy stuff. I loved the Ozzy Sabbath, but I was kind of into the heavier uh, riffing stuff that Dio did with black Sabbath. Which version of black Sabbath do you actually prefer? I love them both. I can't, I can't really couldn't say I preferred one or the other. Yeah. I think they suit different moods really. Completely. Completely different moods. Yeah, I agree yeah. with you there yeah. for sure. Yeah. So you're 17 years old and you're you're in the room writing songs with Dio. Were you that young at that point? Yeah, I was. I think 17. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, I mean, you know, he he just made it really easy for me because I had no confidence that I could do it. And he goes, "Yeah, you trust me, you can do it. You know, shut up, <laughs> you're fine." <laughs> yeah. And I mean, when you're that young and you're in a room with a bunch of older musicians, veteran musicians, I would think that it would be easy for them to just kind of say, here, kid, play this and go on about their business. But they were they pretty open about, I mean, obviously you wrote some of the, you co-wrote some of the stuff that's on Lock Up the Wolves. So I'm assuming that they valued your opinion. They gave you input. They made you feel like a part of the band, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think what Ronnie, I don't want to speak for him, but I remember he loved, you know, he loved rock and roll and he was a fan first, you know, of Beatles and Zeppelin. And um, so to have a good rock and roll band, everyone's got to, be good at what they do and you just let them do it and that was his attitude i think but he definitely steered the ship and he wrote the songs with his band this is the way i view it as his band and he'd get this part and that part and where should we go and try this but he was definitely steering and composing the material with the input from his musicians that's the way i see it anyway it could have been different in the early days but that's my experience Right. He kind of knew what he wanted at that point in time, which, I mean, that speaks loads. You know, that's kind of what leadership is. Let the, the guy do exactly what it is they're good at doing and let right. him contribute. Yeah. And, and also, I think to get a good rock album, you've got to have a band in a room and they've got to be having fun and coming up with stuff. And if you're telling people what to play, it's not necessarily going to be the same record as if everyone's doing their thing, you know? 
Yeah, exactly. I think there's, you know, there was a lot of press out at the time when you came into the picture and that story's been told a million times. And I've heard even you give some of the, you know, you sent the tape in to management, management heard it and invited you for the audition. But some of the things that I read is that it wasn't really as simple as that. It You actually failed a couple times to get close enough to management to get your stuff heard. So you had to kind of, it was persistence that won out, I think, in the end. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. I, it got The tape got sent back to me the first time from the record label, and then I sent it to the fan club. That, that's it. That's unheard of. I mean, that's essentially like cold calling for an audition. It doesn't really happen. That yeah. should be a lesson to a lot of young uh, players out there that if uh, you want something bad enough, uh, keep at it and you'll find a way to maybe make headway, right? I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. You've got to um, just see it and go for it and nothing can stop you really in life. This was your first audition, really, your first real audition. And here you are in a room with uh, Ronnie James Dio, and you're playing songs. What was the first live date? Do you remember the first live show you played with him? Yeah, it was in um, Holland, and it was supporting Metallica on their Unjustice tour. Wow. In Zvola, in Holland. Okay. So, so the- yeah, I know. It was crazy. It was like 7,000 7, people, and, it, and I was really you know, really confident about it. And I just ran out there and, you know, turned, I just, you know, just complete confidence. I ran out on stage and I hit the off button on my rig and they booed me. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a bit of a, a bit of a difficult start, but it got better from there. Yeah. I've seen a few, a few video clips here and there. It's uh, there's not a ton of stuff out there, but uh, I've seen a few things. It looks like uh, some of the things I've seen where you're you're playing a festival and you you guys are opening up with the wild ones, and uh, that's right. You look pretty cocksure of yourself. <laughs> I was, you know, I was. I mean, that was that's what protected me. I think that's what made it so easy for me. I think in those times, you know, it was because I was just it was all new, and you you know you don't know any, you know, when you're a kid, you just you just sort of bounce on through it, you know. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. And what do you remember for that Metallica tour? I mean, I can only imagine because that's Metallica when those guys were all ridiculously crazy. So what were some of the memories you took away from that tour? It was only five dates, I think. And I remember Lars was really friendly and talkative and, and like, let's go, let's do this and that. And and also um, Kirk was very nice as well. And and I didn't see Jason much. I think Jens hung out with Jason a bit. And uh, the only time I spoke to James was we were in the bar and um, the record company were there. And, and I, he was sitting at a table by himself. And, and, and I said, can I buy you a drink? And he, he looks up and he says, why do you want to buy me a drink when the record company's here? And he looks back down. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Interesting. Because you'll have to pay yeah. it back should have been the answer. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. That's just the thing you do, I guess. That's funny. So the Dio thing comes and goes, and it was probably much too quick for your taste because I'm sure that you would have liked for that to last longer. I actually loved Lock Up the Wolves. I thought there were a lot of great songs on that record. Great, thank you. 
I prefer the straight ahead rockers as opposed to some of the really slow grooving darker stuff. That's just my personal yeah. taste. I loved Hey yeah. Angel, uh, Walk on Water, Wild Ones. I, I loved all that kind of stuff. I thought it was fantastic. Oh, thanks a lot. And uh, yeah, your solo was great. I'm trying to remember if at some point I actually saw you live with Dio because I can't. I know I saw Dio around about the time of Lock Up the Wolves in the States, and I saw yeah. saw it happen in probably a much smaller venue than what he was used to, but I can't remember yeah. who was playing guitar at the time. Right, yeah, yeah. That would have been uh, ni- early 90s, I suppose. Yeah, I think it was around about uh, 91, 92, maybe. All right, yeah. So you go on and you start to work with Oni Logan from Lynch Mob, which is mm-hmm. kind of a, a weird matchup because Oni's kind of got this 60s, 70s acid rock type vibe, right? And feel yeah. to his performance, which is obviously a lot different than Ronnie James Dio, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. Was Scott Coogan part of Violet Demise as well? Yeah. Okay. Scott Coogan and Spencer Campbell. Was the goal of Violet and Demise, were you guys purposely trying to be sort of completely different than what was out at the time? Yeah. I, well, no, it wasn't that we were trying to be completely different than what was out at the time, but I decided I wanted to play like blues. And I guess that was quite typical at the time, you know, for rock guitarists wanting to go more bluesy. Sure. But I only wanted to go like U2, Velvet Underground and all this stuff. And and then what with my backing in classical guitar and bits and pieces, just sort of came up with this strange mix. And um, it wasn't trying to be different. And I knew at the time, I knew that it was an opportunity to do something, um, you know, because I, I listened to like Sabbath Bloody Sabbath and Jumping Jack Flash and, and all these great classic recordings. And I just really loved it, and I, and it was exciting to me and creative, and it, that's all it was about. It was, it was about having a crack at making a really creative classic rock album, and um, that was it. Right. Ultimately, that record got shelved by Atlantic Records, but I yeah. think it was a pretty solid rock record. It just for whatever reason, probably politics when it comes to record companies, it just never got yeah. released, right? It could have been released. If they were going to release it, they sent us in to write a single, which didn't happen, and they said they'd release it, but then only didn't want to edit the, edit the single, and then they just said they dropped us. But there was a lot of politics and everything, and, and um, never got released. Yeah. So I know when you came out of Dio, you wanted to basically pick up a gig right away and start gigging, and the, the only Logan connection, I think, came through Wendy Dio. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I was thinking maybe, obviously, you knew your craft. You were a fantastic guitar player. There had to be a place for you somewhere. But I think with music, it's all about uh, networking and connections. And so do you feel like you just didn't make the needed networking connections while you were in Dio to launch yourself into some other long standing gig. Yeah, that's definitely fair, definitely fair to say. Yeah. 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 Mid nineties come around and you kind of, you basically took a break, right? I mean, you weren't really doing music for a period of time. Yeah, I was always doing it. Yeah. I was always playing music and always striving to improve and, and learning about music and 
going through different phases of learning this and that and, you know, reading music or classical or jazz or getting into old music, like digging back into like the Delta Blues guys and all the stuff that, you know, a lot of guitarists go through. But no, I was always always doing music, but making a living at it didn't happen again till late late nineties, I suppose. Right. Okay. I see what you're saying. So yeah, I mean you never necessarily put down the guitar, but you were paying bills in other ways. Oh yeah, I was. I've never, never put it down. No. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So something that I didn't realize till I started doing research, and I was like, "What the hell? How did the how did that happen?" I'm curious. So how does Rowan Robertson end up meeting and playing with Billy Ray Cyrus? Oh well, there's a producer in LA called Brandon Friesen, and I can't remember how I met him, but I remember I was playing at a jam with Happening Harry. I don't know if you know Happening Harry. But he has these. He always had these jams in Hollywood, and this Australian guy came up and he says, "Oh, how you been, Rowan? Come down, play on a session." So I said, "Sure," and I went down, and this guy Brandon Friesen was producing it for an Australian band, and I put a solo on it. And then six months later, he called me up and he said, "He said, can you play slide?" And I said, "Yeah." Well, I really couldn't. <laughs> and he said, "Well, come, come down. I got, a, I got a session for you." And that's it. That's how it happened. And you just sort of take anything, any gig you can get, really. Yeah. So when you tell him you can play slide, did you run out and get a bunch of Almond Brothers records and start listening to them? <laughs> no, I can get by just a little bit. But I think the guys that do that country stuff are such amazing players and they really do it. I mean, I just dabble. I would have, uh, I would think though, you're right about the country players. Some of those guys are amazing, but I'm oh, wondering yeah, yeah. if uh, some of your earlier influences, like the finger picking in the folk, did that help you later on down the road a little bit? Yeah, I've always been versatile. Yeah. I think, yeah, I've always been able to sort of get by and sort of in any style a little bit, you know? Right. So you end up somehow on the radar of Madden football and Smallville. How does that connection happen? That's this guy in LA called Barry Squire. And he puts together, um, he always puts together like bands for people that had a tour going out. Like, let's say like Avril Lavigne needs a band or like, you know, the guy from the Eels or something, you know, right. like needs to put a, together a band. And he's got this Rolodex. He's the guy in LA that puts all that stuff together. And that's how I got the gig with this band Vast. And then same thing with this band AM Radio. It was it was a pop band and it was definitely different, but it was a it was a Barry Swire thing. It was uh Rivers Cuomo from Weezer's friend, this guy <laughs> Kevin, Kevin Lydell, who he moved out from Connecticut with and uh was in a band together and, and um he wanted to manage Kevin and put together a band with him, so he went to Barry Squire. Yeah, now see that's that's the type of musical connection it sounds like you could have used right right out of Dio because that's what I kind of would have envisioned for you being as good of a, a player and as versatile as you are, you'd end up in some of these projects whether it's Ringo Starr's band or whoever needs a guitar player, you know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, so we recently completed uh, the Rock and Pod Expo in Nashville, and and while we were there, we met Drew Fortier at Rock and Pod, and he's a pretty impressive kid. I'm assuming yeah. that uh, maybe you're a little bit of a mentor to him in Bang Tango, if you call it that. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose. I mean, Drew's a great guy. Drew's a great guy, and 
he made that Bang Tango movie. Like he, he didn't know how to make a movie, but he just decided one day he would make a movie. And, you know, he made this really great documentary and he's written a book already and he's put together a band already with videos. And I mean, he's just such an able guy and he's a really nice guy. We were super impressed with him. We thought he was a really, really super nice guy. So uh, we wondered yeah. if maybe you might have helped him along the way since you were a little bit more seasoned. No, 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 I didn't do any help, no. Okay. <laughs> you you still playing in Bang Tango when they play? You know, I've been doing this Raiding the Rock Vault thing in Vegas for a couple of years, pretty full on. Yeah. I know they've got someone playing in their, in their band at the moment that plays with Lance in, in Phoenix. So, you know, I haven't spoken to them, and so I'm not quite sure what's going on with that situation right now. Right. So you mentioned Raiding the Rock Vault, and uh, I'll talk to you about that now. That's pretty much your full-time gig, right? Yeah, for a few years. When you're doing that thing, are you on stage 100% of the time, or do you do you switch off with uh, some of the other guys? Um, 100% of the time. Okay. Uh, when, I'm, when, I'm, yeah, when I'm doing the show, if I'm stage right guitar, I'm there, yeah, five nights a week. All right, my co-host is excited. My co-host Sonny finally gets to see the show in early October, so he's he's wanted me to take make sure I mention to you he's totally a hundred percent psyched to see it. Great, well, do pass on my info to him, and it'd be good to say hello. Uh, I will absolutely do that. So playing in Vegas must be completely crazy. Can you can you share any crazy stories that might have happened to you while you were out there playing? I know Vegas, it can be tiring. I mean, you, you can't go out and party all the time, you know. Yeah. Though we do, you know, we do. It's a really great bunch of people, and we do hang out and do some, you know, late-nighters, but you've got to, got to be careful of that in Vegas. Actually, everyone's really got their head screwed on straight, you know. Right. Like Paul Shortino and, and Robin, they're all just great guys, and and they've got their, you know, lives in order, and they handle their business really well, you know. Yeah, Paul Shortino, it's interesting you mention him. He he looks like an extremely positive guy these days. I've watched him post uh, several times, and uh, it's always something positive. Real positive, really big-hearted guy, great guy. Awesome. Uh, so how did you end up meeting the guys in DC4? Uh, again, that was through Happening Harry, actually. Again? Um, yeah, that's another one through Harry. Um, he took his cover band, the Haptones to Chicago and um, the other guitar player he brought along was Jeff Duncan. That's how I met Jeff and Jeff said, come and jam with his band. And so it's the, it's the three brothers and yourself, correct? Correct. So what are the future plans for DC four? Because it doesn't look like you guys gig a whole lot. And I, I realize that everybody's got their full time pay the bill type gigs that are going on. Oh, well, hopefully we can do some touring on this album. You know, and make another one and uh, like that, you know.
So let's talk about the Atomic Highway record. I've listened to it several times over now uh, just to get myself familiar with it. And uh, it's a pretty solid rock record. It's a little interesting. You guys open up with sort of, I guess it could be called an instrumental, which is not a typical rock band type thing to do. I guess it's a little bit more on the progressive side of things. Not that the piece is progressive, but... Yeah. How did the writing go with uh, this record, and was there a conscious effort to put this together in any certain fashion? You know, that's that's really a question for Jeff, um, because he pretty much handled this album writing and um, guitars. You know, that's it, pretty much Jeff. You know, he certainly certainly you got to ask ask him about any of the writing mm-hmm. because. Uh, we all heard it along the way and, and he'd give us CDs and that to listen to. And, and I went in and put some solos on it when it was time. But that's definitely a question for Jeff. Is that pretty much all you've done is put solos on this record? Did you not play anything else on the record? Uh, no, that's all I've done on this record is the solos, yeah. Okay. Uh, I was not aware of that. I thought kind of this was a complete band effort, but it sounds like uh, more Jeff Duncan than anything. It is, yeah. I mean, that's fair to say. That's fair to say. But he's been, as I say, you know, we've been hearing the stuff as it, as it came along. Yeah, I completely understand. So let me ask you this. Have have anyone ever surprised you by stating you were the inspiration uh, that got them playing uh, guitar? Yeah. With a high-profile gig like Dio, that's going to be inspiring to people just like I was inspired, you know? Right. All right, cool. So, well, we hope to see you out on the road at some point. Before I let you go, 
I want to do a quick round of questions with you and just, you know, don't overthink it. Just kind of answer them as you go. All right. All right. So song you wish you'd wrote? Uh, 737. All right. How about your favorite Dio song to play live? Oh, uh, to play live? There's so many great ones. You can pick any of them. Rainbow in the Dark. Yeah? <laughs> okay. Name two Desert Island albums. Two albums you take to a Desert Island with you. Um... Women and Children for Sergeant Pepper. Nice. How about the best concert you ever attended? Donington 88 Iron Maiden. Out of the stuff that you co-wrote with Dio, do you have a favorite? No, no. no. But um, uh, how about Why Are They Watching Me?
How about your favorite guitar player? Uh, Tony Army. All right. Pedal you can't live without. So your your pedal board. Uh, treble booster. Okay. Zeppelin or the Beatles? Zeppelin. Favorite song to play with Raiden the Rock Vault? Um, Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> I saw that double uh, neck Gibson that you, you're sporting there <laughs> yeah. in some of the pictures. Yeah. All right, man. It's been great. I really appreciate you spending some time with us, Rowan. I hope to get out there to see the Raiden the Rock Vault at some point. Yeah. It'd be really good to meet you, Stephen. Thanks for the chat. Appreciate it. Take care. make sure you subscribe to our podcast Growing Up Rock and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 